BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Alan Parker said, sometimes, with the British film industry, it's hard to know if we're waving or drowning. Let's find out. Welcome to the BritFlix.com podcast. My name is Stuart Wright, and thank you, if this is your first visit, for choosing to listen to my podcast. Um, I wanted to interrupt it before the show starts by pointing out that I had a little bit of a um, audio issue in the sense that ordinarily I can record a, uh, a show over the airwaves and then split out the two voices, my voice being into the computer and the guest's voice being over Skype or FaceTime. And uh, in this instance, I use FaceTime, forgetting there are some technical problems that I don't understand. Uh, hopefully I'll line them out one day. Uh, which means that uh, while the audio's fine on this next podcast, my guest's voice is much louder than mine, which is fine because he's he's doing all the talk and I'm I'm just uh, filling the gaps when he's when he's not doing saying something interesting about about horror films. But uh, it is a shame because just got down and I can appreciate how that might be annoying when you're uh, you're trying to listen to it on headphones. But hopefully it doesn't take away from the fact that this is an absolutely fascinating uh, conversation with a expert in film so without further ado I will well, expert in film and expert in the period in the, the 40s and 50s uh, cinema as much as anything as as anything else uh, and we and he, he navigates me through waters that sort of uh, <clears throat> talk about the cultural context as well as the uh, the text themselves um, which I found just fascinating. So I'll stop rambling on and let you listen to the show. Again, apologies for the uh, fluctuation in sound, but it is consistent, if nothing else. Enjoy. Hello. Got my name right, which is unusual. The benefits of foreign footballers playing in the Premier League, I think that's probably to do with one of the else. Well, there you go. Liverpool used to have a player that had a very similar spelt name. Uh, so it was definitely, it was the Jan bit, I think. I'm guessing people might go with a Jan first. I suppose. Yeah. 
you know, normally. Indeed. Well, look, uh, Mark is a professor of film studies at the University of East Anglia, yeah? Yep. And I'm talking to you because you're on the uh, brink, as I speak to you now on Monday the 4th, of doing a Mitzkatonic Institute of Horror Studies talk called The Paranoid Woman's Film. Do you want to give people a sort of flavour as to what that what that's all about and what that will entail and what and what that title even means? Well, yeah, very simply, um, it relates to the 1940s, particularly in American film, though, as we'll probably talk about in relation to British as well. Mm. And um, in most versions of horror history, most people write and claim that when we reach the 1940s, the 1940s is a pretty dead period. It's usually seen as the last trail ends and dying embers of the uh, 1930s cycle. Um, and the only significant feature is supposed to be um, the films of Val Luton. Okay. But one of the things I've been doing is work around the 40s and looking at the reviews. And what you actually find is that a huge number of films in the period are were understood as horror. It's one of the biggest waves. It's um, the 1940s them, in themselves viewed it as a boom period for horror. And that's because a whole series of things that we would today not necessarily read as horror were read as horror back then. So most of the things we'd call film noir now, so uh, thrillers like um, the Philip Marlowe, um, Raymond Chandler films and so forth, um, those were all read as horror. Double Indemnity was read as horror. But also a series of women's films which were some of the biggest and most influential films of the period, particularly Rebecca and a series of films coming out there. So Rebecca was one. Um, uh, another big one was Gaslight, which won the Oscars in 1944, swept the Oscars in 44, and um, was explicitly seen as a horror film at the time. Um, and, um, and even things like Jane Eyre, the Orson Welles Jane Eyre was... Um, seen as a horror film so what i'm looking at is that alternative way of looking at the 40s looking at those films and their relationships to the film noirs and um particularly what one has there is a female-centered horror film predominantly so that's what i'll be doing on thursday so just just for, for thinking of that what, what you're describing there because i think what i find interesting is that as of late I've, we, we seem to have in like a, the postmodern discussion about horror is that horror is a broad church. Now you've just said in that in that opening gambit, you've just said that horror was a broad church. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> already once before. So when did we narrow it down? Why did we narrow it down again when we were already kind of going? Yeah, anything because I mean, Fright Fest as a film festival now calls itself the dark arts of cinema as opposed to the home of horror. You know, it's, right. it's sort of, which, you know, you could fit Double Indemnity into the Dark Art of Horror. You could fit Lost Weekend into the Dark Art of Horror. You could fit Rebecca, you know, without without needing to worry about whether or not it was a horror film. Well, I mean, you mentioned Lost Weekend. Lost Weekend was celebrated as a horror film at the time and was seen as, for at last, a realistic horror film. It was a, it was a, it was a um, horror film that really stressed realism. Um, though I would also argue a number of other films do, and that's a longer story. But, um, yeah, I mean, and why did this get narrowed down? I think it gets narrowed down for a number of different reasons. One is that 
people's memory of periods um, coalesces. So, for example, the late 80s is now remembered as a period of slasher films, but it's also a period in which there are a whole series of big-budget, high-profile horror films coming out at the same time, um, made by name directors. I mean, if I was to say Michael Caine, can you name the 1980s horror films um, that Michael Caine made? He made about... He made at least three that I can name off the top of my head. John, Dress to Kill, The Island, and The Hand, which is an Oliver Stone. It's Oliver Stone's first directorial, his directorial debut, and is a horror film about a man, Michael Caine, who loses his hand in a car accident, then think it's, it's come back from the dead and is killing people off. So these films get forgotten, and therefore we kind of rewrite periods why did this particularly happen with um, with early periods? Well, most of the histories of horror, the big, real boom period in writing about histories of horror is in the 60s and 70s, coming out of the phenomenal success of Hammer and so forth. But that also means that actually what people remember are the Hammer films, and those books tend to um, take a kind of Hammer image of horror, monsters, vampires... Frankenstein's monster, mummies and so forth, as the horror film, and then look back through the history to find films like that. What it's ignoring, as we'll talk about later, is the huge numbers of other films that are going on at the same time with strong relationships to that, um, that were explicitly talked about how, uh, sorry, explicitly talked about as horror, yeah. but which people have forgotten. One of my favourite tricks to do with people is ask them to name their favourite Doris Day horror movie of the 1960s. And Doris Day does make a horror film in the 1960s. Go on, tell us. Uh, 1960s, she makes a film. So the same year as Psycho comes out, Doris Day stars in a film which is produced by Zugman, who's one of the key figures of the women's movie of the 50s. And uh, it's a film called Midnight Lace, in which she plays a an heiress who's being menaced by a voice in the fog um, who's trying to kill her, who's the, um, it's, uh, it's a kind of terror in the London fog film. Right. Um, and uh, her husband's Rex Harrison. And, um, you know, I won't, I won't give you the ending away. But, uh, but that, that's, you know, that's a, um, a big budget, incredibly glossy, incredibly um, um, high production horror movie from 1960. And then, you know, kind of uh, someone like um, Audrey Hepburn makes two. Um, which So one people will less, will less recognise, which is um, something like Charade, which she makes with um, Cary Grant in, I think it's 63, but don't quote me on that, um, is, if you watch the trailer again, it's a comedy, it's a Hitchcockian film, it's a comedy, but it's also full of references, uh, you know, one of the it's a killer with a you know kind of mechanical hand and there's lots and lots of horror stuff in fact one of the key features of the trailer is endless screaming and and um and so forth so but then she moves from that to a much more explicit straightforward horror film which is a classic of the period most people regard it as a classic of the period when they remember to write it into the history stephen king thinks it's one of the greats um, which is Wait Till Dark, where she plays the blind woman in the apartment being terrorised by um, psychopaths. So, you know, it, but those tend to get forgotten in favour of a kind of story of Hammer. Yeah. 
okay. Because it's interesting because some of the things you've already said, Dan, I mean, I don't want to derail us into all kinds of Rocky Road offshoots, but a long time ago I interviewed a author called David Britton who wrote Lord Horror, amongst many other things. And when we talked about what horror meant in the 21st century, he, he, he just talked about the idea that once Hitler had, you know, been seen and demonstrated to have committed such a horror, a mass horror on a human, at human hands on such a scale, then, you know, Frankenstein and Dracula became redundant as a, as a vehicle for horror. And which fits, that narrative fits when you think of Lost Weekend or, or Dead or Night. Um, but then the way that Hammer exploded <laughs> and that kind of post-Universal Studios thing completely and utterly flies in the face of it, doesn't it, at the same time? Well, and I think that's right. I, I would actually argue that there's, um, there's actually... There are really two versions of horror, and I use that very kind of... Um, while trying to step back away from state saying that very carefully... Um, because they're not as pure and simple as that. But basically, when you look across the 20th century, particularly in film, mm-hmm. you find that there are really two strategies. There's what is predominantly a low-budget strategy, which is the monster movie, mm-hmm. um, where which is monster-centred. And then that tends to have a kind of sort of disreputable image. Um, not always, but, um, but tends to. And therefore, what tends to happen at the high end, at the respectable end of the big budget, um, big pictures, is you tend to go for the psychological film. The film where um, is something going on? Is the heroine or the hero going mad? Are they perceiving the world correctly? You know, um, which is also at the heart of the other side. In the sense that dynamic, is is there a fantastic explanation to this or is this a realistic, you know, the kind of is a realistic explanation, the kind of Scooby-Doo ending, in a sense, is a kind of, um, is a tension that a lot of them play out. But the, what you get in the more respectable end is a, um, is a focus on, on a kind of psychological, which keeps the question of the, of the reality of the horror um, in question for some time um, and, um, and makes it kind of more... More respectable, um, it can be. It, so that's why you keep on finding these kind of claims that um, she find in lots and lots of writing on horror. That you know the good, the good version is um, is suggestive, and the bad version is explicit. Now I tend to, I tend to like both options actually. <laughs> Yeah, and I, was, I think. I was say, <laughs> well, I think that's right, and actually, that's one of the things Stephen King talks about. Is he talks um, quite explicitly about this is a dilemma for the writer. He says one of the things in writing and in filmmaking and so forth is what he calls the, the whether to open the door or not. When a lot of horror films, there's something weird going on. It's on the other side of the door. Um, you can really build suspense when you don't know what's on the other side of the door and you can build terror. Mm. He says that consequently some filmmakers say you should never open the door because when you open the door, what is going to be on the other side of the door can never be as terrifying as one's imagination. Um, and he agrees to an extent. He says, well, yeah, absolutely. You're always going to fail if you open the door. 
but it's the responsibility for King of the horror writer to, to open that door, to try and represent what is beyond that door. Yes, you want... So for King, a good horror story should play with that door. With that door. It should keep the door closed for a time. It should open the door, but it should... It can never fully open the door and it can never... Um, uh, it can never keep the door closed. It's got to kind of play with that line. I, I, I can't remember his surname, but Pascal, who wrote The Martyrs, and Tallman are two great examples of where the door is... I mean, in, in Martyrs, the door is literally not even there until they discover the, the trap door into what's underneath the house. Mm. So it's a very surface horror where you're not quite sure where it's going and then we go into somewhere and you think, what the hell is this? And then it goes more horror. And then in Tallman, you're... You're led to believe you're watching a slasher film, and then slowly but surely, the the real horror is rich people are taking poor kids from poor towns because they can give them a better life. And you're like, that's more horrible than a slasher. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, and those lines that, that that kind of what's the real horror is frequently a po a question posed. I mean, the fr a friend of mine used to say about um. Twin Peaks, you know, one of the troubles in P Twin Peaks is, you know, which is the really horrific thing, that to believe that a father could be possessed by an evil spirit and um, murder his own daughter or that he'd murder his own daughter without being possessed by an e evil spirit. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, uh, so yeah, absolutely those dilemmas are at the heart of the horror in the whole series of different ways. Well, look, uh, just, just to, to wrap up there, we've got, so we've got, um, the Paranoid Woman's film is is going to be on Thursday the 7th of March. I'll get this podcast out before then. Um, but we, we won't finish there, the podcast, dear listener. We're now going to do five great British horror films, of which Mark has chosen five lovely chapters for us to embark on. Now, just before we start, Mark, I'll give the, uh, the listeners, and I've never heard this for the first time, and welcome if you've not. Um, the process of, 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 of me sort of delving into what I'm calling five great British horror films isn't to find consensus among everybody and get us all talking about the same five films. It's to really expand and explore what is interesting about British horror. And while you'll find repetition across the series, there is always two or three nuggets of newness or a new point of view or a new time that they saw it. And, and I think that's what makes horror such an interesting conversation topic because as we've just as we've just had then as we as we furrowed around on different rocky roads we could have gone off miles down um horror horror doesn't sit still as a genre so neatly as say something that you would just call a drama um so the rules are simple we do five we pick five um titles we have five minutes on each one and when edgar broughton band sings out demons out we we uh we can finish our sentences, but then we quickly move on so we ensure that we get a good five minutes on each one. So is that is that all clear with you, Mark? That's clear with me. Good, good, good. Right then. So first on your list is the uh, nineteen forty five horror anthology Dead of Night. Do you want to tell us why? You, what makes you choose that one? And I think it's obviously a lot linked to what we've been talking about. Well, I think Dead of Night is generally on most people's lists of one of the great British horror films. It's it's an incredibly um, powerful film, if you've seen it. It builds through a se 
basically, the, it's a series of stories told within the story arc, and the story arc itself turns very nasty towards the end. But it's got a series of very creepy stories along the way. Um, I'm a big fan of the one with the mirror. That um, a, a mirror is bought an, an old, in an antique shop, um, but people start glimpsing things in the mirror. And um, I, basically... The mirror possesses the um, the people on our side of the mirror, um, and that's a great um, that's a great story. The one everybody knows and um, who knows the film, and I don't know anybody who knows the film who doesn't love the um, Michael Redgrave uh, ventriloquist story, in which um, the ventriloquist becomes possessed by his dummy and um, and goes mad. Um, or maybe he doesn't. Maybe the, the maybe the dummy really has a life of its own. So again, a classic psychological. It's never clear whether whether he is whether he's having a breakdown or he's having a breakdown because he's got a dummy that can possess him. Um, but what's interesting about that film is it's it's usually discussed as coming out of nowhere as this weird anomaly in British um, film at the time, but. One of the things that's really important is that that was made at a time when um, America had just kind of acquired Universal Studios, had acquired um, the uh, the company that made it, mm-hmm. um, and um, it was part of a particular strategy for making films f- that would do well, or was hoped would do well, in the American market as well. And what you have is a whole series of films in that period which are actually read as much, much more closely associated with the horror film um, than we would now remember. So before it is something like Seventh Veil, which is a big hit in um, in the States. And the Seventh Veil is a, um, a story of James Mason's a sadistic um, uh, ward of a young girl, and it's all about psychological trauma and so forth. But actually, it's a classic example of the paranoid woman's films that I'll be talking about on Thursday. Going on, actually, most of the Palin Pressburger films, something like The Red Shoes, something like Black Narcissus, even to some extent Matter of Life and Death, they were all very much understood in the American context as classic examples of paranoid women's films too, particularly um, something like The Red Shoes with um, the explicit Svengali story and many um, paranormal women's films read as Svangali narratives, men who keep women under their psychological spell and dominate them psychologically. So um, what one's seeing is a series of kind of films there. And then there's also things like um, the the David Lean films of the period, um, particularly Great Expectations, which if you rewatch it, is a huge dark gothic tale of of madness, of... um, of uh, victimization and so forth, which, which is again a kind of quite explicitly gothic story, um, which was read in those terms when it went to when it went to the states. So, what's interesting about Dead of Night is it's a great film, but actually also you start seeing it has much stronger associations um, with other British films than um, than you might initially expect, and of course the key quality all of those stories have is their psychological dramas. They're stories about 
people going mad or being driven mad by others, usually both. Yeah. yeah. So, so in terms of, we're, we're told that um, horror and war don't mix. Now, this film was released sort of less than six months after the war finished. How, how does that compute that there'd be a thirst for horror films when you've, you've literally sort of lived through a very stoic period of war for five, for six years previously? Well, this is quite interesting. It's quite interesting taking the American side for a moment. To look. Um, one of the things that happens in World War Two is um, Hollywood gears up for wartime production once they enter the war. And there's a whole series of big war movies um, released. And um, it's quite interesting. There's a New York Times article on this which says, you know, kind of Hollywood is completely abandoned by 1943. Hollywood's completely abandoned wartime filmmaking. The, the war as a topic is seen as box office poison. Um, there are a couple of exceptions, but largely seen as box office poison. What there is, a, a, I think, for is, is horror. Now, what's interesting is that that could be seen as meaning that horror becomes a kind of fantasy that allows us to escape from the war. And so people of both say, yeah, you wouldn't want to watch horror films in a war situation because they're real things. Oh, oh there you go. Finish your sentence. Go on, sorry. Um, but the inverse is also the case that actually... Um, these became, became ways of talking about things that were going on in wartime um, during the war without doing so directly. Okay, okay. That's, that's easy. Yeah, makes sense then, yeah. Because uh, I guess we get we get bombarded with such hard, hard statistics and numbers these days with the way that we understand the film market that what we're being told really is a kind of, is a big macro shift, not a cultural shift, we'll sort of say. <laughs> you know, just economics we're being told about, about there's no hunt, there's no there's no thirst for horror films when things are going shit and things like that. Um, but but in the end, horror always ends up sort of breaking its own rules. You know, you think of like the, all the torture porn being born out of a kind of period where we're learning that we're we're torturing each other to get you know to get to understand what's going on and to so we don't fear our enemy anymore. And so and so a bunch of films also mirror that that thing that's happening across the world as well. Well, absolutely. And I think, um, I mean, the, the, the really interesting thing about horror films in the 40s was what they did was um, the war meant that actually the censors had to back off, which allowed the horror films to actually deal with a series of issues that they couldn't have previously dealt with. So in a series of ways, it was the war that actually allowed them greater space to deal with things like alcoholism in the long um, weekend or you know, kind of various different topics that um didn't take them long to get control wrestle control back, did it? <laughs> well, I think actually they never quite wrestled control back. It's the what's really interesting is the extent to which the forties horror films do break um a kind of and champion and I um an aesthetics of realism, yeah. ironically, that really kind of continues and. Well, we'll probably get there later. Yeah, yeah, they yeah. Well, they, let's, they let's, do it so in later periods as well. Let's, uh, let's jump into the 50s now with Quatermass, the TV series we're doing, aren't we? Well, I, I think we were kind of talking about both Hammer and... Um, so Hammer's obviously big in the period. I'm not going to choose a straightforward Hammer, uh, but Hammer actually, just before it makes its first gothics, has been making the... Um, adaptations of um, 
the television series by, written by Nigel Neal um, of the Quatermass series. And I find, I mean, they are some of my favourite, particularly Quatermass and the Pit, which doesn't get made by Hammer until the mid-60s, but is made in the late 50s for British television. And um, he's a very, very interesting television series, which although it's a science fiction story about Martians, <laughs> it's also absolutely about race relations and about um, nuclear weapons and and about the various intolerances that, Amer uh, that um, British society during the 1950s um, was witnessing. The race riots, um, the... Um, the rise of nuclear um, weaponry and the arms race and so forth. And it's a very, very interesting series about questioning those no questioning notions of progress and what is primitive, what's progressive and, uh, and so forth. And it's interesting. That's where Hammer starts doing work. It's initially doing adaptations of television plays. Describing there was a pre-shade at the time was what was driving sort of Nigel Neal and his ideas, or is that something we see now? We look back and, and put it in a different in a, in, a, in a context of the fifties, a decade. It, it's made quite explicit in the series. I mean, the 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 um the television series, the Quatermass and Pit, ends with a direct address to camera by Quatermass, in which he tells us, the audience, that we are the Martians now, if we don't face, and I'm, I'm not going to be able to quote it directly, but if we're not willing to look at our um, our destructive capabilities and our dis the destructive sides of our own nature, then um, that we are going to destroy the planet and we're going to destroy one another. And he explicitly talks about witch hunts, which was going on at the time, Politically, he talks about race riots, which were going on in, in British cities in the late 50s. Um, uh, he talks about pogroms. He, so he explicitly links the C Cold War um, witch trials to the race um, riots that were going on in the, in the uh, late 50s at, to, um, to Nazi Germany, to the arms race. And that is, those are all brought together quite explicitly in the final um, speech. And politically, nobody responded to that, as if to say, how dare you make that suggestion? Was that never... Uh, yeah, well, <laughs> well he, the trouble is he'd already ridden that problem earlier. So um, in the mid-50s, he does the quite a mass series. And, uh, he's doing a lot of British television at the, at the time. Um, he's actually very much involved in... Uh, Tony Richardson's first um, work with television um, in the mid-50s before he goes on to make things like um, Look Back in Anger. But um, but Neil had already made a television version of um, uh, 1984, um, which starred Peter Cushing, which is, of course, again, Peter Cushing comes out of, you know, and that's one of the reasons why Hammer takes... Um, Peter Cushing up as Frankenstein. Um, but it, that, that had already provoked huge scandals in the British press about its political contents and so forth. Um, so in a series of ways, he'd already been there. He'd already faced the flack of the press and, um, and triumphed. He could, he could triumph because, I mean, the, um, the, the viewing figures for those, those television programs 
were enormous. I mean, there was, I think it's actually Quatermass and the Pit is the one where they talk about British pubs being empty the nights when it was shown. Um, it was, um, it was so, it so captivated the nation that people basically weren't going out. Um, so it was, um, uh, while it was on. Well, like, like I was saying to you before we started recording, is a friend of mine was telling me that um, they've commissioned or they're developing a new a new version of it for TV. Well, that's brilliant. I mean, you know, well, I mean, they could completely mess it up, but <laughs> one hopes not. <laughs> no, indeed, indeed. Um, I can see the clock, and it's just about to do out, out. So that gives me the excuse to jump another decade and to. The Nanny in 1965. Now, why, why would you why would you choose a film like The Nanny? As well, <clears throat> I'm choosing The Nanny not necessarily because it's one of my favourite horror films because it ain't, but it's a really good horror film. If people don't know, it, they should go out and see it. But it's a really interesting one because it, it's again it's Hammer, but it's Hammer in a very different guise to the ways in which we um, would normally expect to see Hammer. And it's, um, it's made in the mid-60s. Um, it stars Betty Davis, who's recently come off um, whatever happened to Baby Jane um, as a evil, psychotic nanny. Um, but it, it also stars Wendy Craig, who's just come off um, The Servant, which is the Pinter, um, jo- Joseph Losey, um Harold Pinter film, which was a big art house hit in '63. But is clearly discussed as a horror film at the time. Um, it's a psycho- another psychological horror, um, but but an art house one. And so, what's interesting about that film is <clears throat> the ways in which it's Hammer and it's the Hammer team, but they're drawing on bits of what's going on in America with what happened to Baby Jane. It's kind of referencing back to um, to the art house and the respectable end of the market and it's very it's a very quiet it's a very well made it's um it's a really really serious attempt to make a a high class quality respectable horror film that because one of the things to, we need to see is with hammer throughout the um throughout the 19 um 50s and 60s what hammer is trying to do is break, break out of low budget filmmaking um, to make, you know, to the horror films have been their, their, their signal that they could make, they could break into the American market, that they could break, make glossier films. What you've had, though, is a series of attempts throughout the, um, late 50s and early 60s to, to go more highbrow, go more respectable, um, which tend to end badly. Um, the nanny doesn't, but basically they, they, they're, they're sort of, what's the word I'm looking you know, um, they're stuffed by the, um, the major Hollywood studios who move back into the market to, and drive Hammer out. And it's really the late fifties when, um, when Hammer starts becoming strongly associated with Frankenstein and Dracula. Okay. Um, I mean, it's. Although it does make sequels to Frankenstein and Dracula, between 19, the mid-50s and the mid-60s, it makes one Dra- Frankenstein and then two follow-ups, one Dracula and two, and two follow-ups. 
Um, it's really after 1965 when it goes into a period of, um, you know, its fortunes are fading that it starts moving into producing almost one a year. And by the 70s, I think they make two Draculas a year in one year. So it's, um, that's a kind of response to a kind of failure of a kind of desperation of flogging whatever horses it's got. But what's interesting about the nanny is the exact opposite, a kind of an ambition to be something different. And it's, it's interesting that 65, 65 is the year Otto Preminger, one of the biggest directors in Hollywood, comes over to make uh, Bonnie Lake is Missing, which stars, which is written by John Mortimer, stars Laurence Olivier. <laughs> um, it's, um, it's a, it's an incredibly respectable horror movie. It's the same year that, um, William Wyler, probably one of the most respected directors, um, in Hollywood, um, multiple award winner, um, comes over to film The Collector, which is a John Foles novel about a psychopathic serial killer, um, in the making. Um, and he makes that with Terence Stamp and Samantha Egger. These are big prestigious movies it's also the year that a, a small art house director from uh eastern europe is brought over to britain and makes one of the big art house hits which is again an art house horror hit which is repulsion by um by roman plansky who will go on to make rosemary's baby um see, see well, you you tell the narrative like this it's like we we're hitting like it's like a golden era, isn't it, for arse out horror? Oh, absolutely! In the sense that you know, the, 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 we live in a world now where we're talking about post horror, elevated genre, etc., etc. Whereas this was a, this was a period where there was where people were eager to make it. They weren't they weren't wasn't, they weren't strategizing about it or anything. It was like this is the films we should make. Sounds sounds to me the way you described in the linear. Oh, absolutely, and it's a, it's some of the most respectable figures in the industry. I mean, you know, you you see some of the most respectable people. Pinter, you know, the the right playwright of the the era. Actually, if you look at his plays again, they're they're explicitly influenced by horror. He actually, when he gets an opportunity to direct in the seventies, he directs a a, um, a New York production of The Innocents. The um um. A British horror film that we haven't discussed, but um, it, you know the um, you you have Peter Brook who, who's um, uh, you know kind of uh, makes um, Lord of the Flies in '63 as a kind of art house horror movie. By the '70s, he makes a version of King Lear, which um, divides critics. Some people love it; it's kind of art house Shakespeare horror. Um, some people love it. Pauline Kael says it might as well be called Night of the Living Dead. Um, and actually, it looks like Night of the Living Dead. The aesthetics of it, visually, are, are, is a kind of um, uh, Night of the Living Dead with um, with Shakespeare. Um, well, look, with, with the, way, the way you describe this, this, this build or this, this kind of concentrated moment in the mid-60s, it, it seems right then that your next film is, is arguably like, I guess, the epoch of that movement in... Art House Horror with Don't Look Now, 1973. Yeah, and you take that, that's, an, that's an, again, a really interesting moment of a continuation of that. You have Nicholas Rogue, who's the, you know, hot, hot, hot um, British director, um, very, very arty, very kind of um, 
you know, kind of experimental and so forth, making a horror film, which is again Daphne de Murillo playing back to um, Rebecca and the Birds, which, both of which Hitchcock has directed. But um, he's got Julie Christie and Donald Sutherland. So you've got kind of um, edgy actors and with with respectable box office credentials appearing in a horror film, which is both a horror film and a very very experimental movie. Now. I'm going to say this because I think it, I think I'm right, <laughs> but uh, somebody's going to write in and tell me I'm wrong. But I'm pretty sure that I remember that when that came out, I, because I wanted to go and see it, but I was a little bit too young. Um, it was released as a double bill with The Wicker Man. I've, I have been fortunate enough to see it in its original double bill. Fright well, there you go. Frightfest did a uh, they had a thing called the Sleepy Queue, and um, they rewarded the Sleepy Queue, which was people who get up at stupid o'clock to queue up for a ticket. And uh, they showed the double bill as as was. Well, and that's that's again interesting because that's written by one of the Schaefer brothers. The Schaefer brothers were again highly experimental, highly well known kind of um, you know kind of in art theatre. They come out of um, the absurd absurdist theatre. Um, they do they do a whole series of um, you know incredibly well known plays. Um, so. I always get confused which one's which, but you know, Sleuth is is one of their things. Um, but also, so is something like Equus, um, Royal Hunt for the Sun. Is it, so what you have is a kind of actually some of the most respectable playwrights. Amadeus, actually, look at Amadeus. It's um, it's one of the Schaefer brothers' plays, and it's a huge gothic story of madness. Um, so you know, yeah, absolutely, you see in um. And the Wicker Man, also all of those um, bits. There's you can see bits of Hammer, you can see bits of the um, the art house, the theatrical, and um, and so forth. And that's there in a kind of whole series of different um, elements of the film. What, what do you think? What do you think is ostensibly British about what Nicholas Rogue was doing with film? Well, I think that's a. You see, I think that's a kind of. And we'll get onto this maybe a bit more in in the next film but i think one of the things that's always troubling is those kinds of claims of what is british um the trouble... my, my, my reason for asking the question is is that we're not seen as being a country that really sort of sees the importance of cinema and yet here was a director who was a visionary wasn't he it was like he could see the power of the medium well absolutely and i think that's one of the things that fascinates him about horror and why he keeps returning to horror and science fiction is that he's he's concerned with those um, that sense that you have in horror, which is um, that actually the surfaces of reality are not reality, that reality is things we can't see, that we're driven by forces that we don't. We So, that, I mean, at the beginning of Don't Look Now, they actually, that's that's the opening. They're sitting around, the kids were outside playing, and... Um, the kid has asked a question that uh, Julie Christie is looking up. Why do, um, if the world is round, why do lakes, when they freeze, look flat? And what she finds is, oh, I've just found it. Uh, apparently they're not flat. They only look flat. Um, that, you know, appearances can be deceptive. And that's absolutely what the film plays with, which is the continual, his ability, the threat is his continual inability to tell fantasy from reality, to think what is real is in fact a fantasy, to think what is a fantasy is in fact real. And um, and that's what destroys him. 
So in a series of ways, one of the things that fascinates um, Rogue is precisely those questions about the visual and the visuals, the difficulty of reading the visual, the difficulty of being in, able to interpret it and know what it means, um, which is something that goes from performance right through his career. Um, because also, I mean, it, it, it's also the displacement from from the kind of British idyll to to the you know the crumbling you know Venetian city. Um, that doesn't say anything about Britain at all, does it? It's sort of a location where the story isn't. Except that, that actually, that's something I hadn't thought about that. But that's a really good one. Of, Go on, sorry. But one of the things that's interesting is how often. And and actually, Julie in Julie Christie, I was just watching Darling last night, and Julie Christie ends up in Italy. Um, the sense of um, the fascination with the Italian in 1950s and 1960s Britain is huge. So the um, people are often escaping England to the Italian as a kind of retreat from the problems of Britishness. Um, but as happens in now that doesn't necessarily save you <laughs> and the end of darling is it doesn't necessarily save you actually and that, that, that's a that's a good segue for us to move on to into the 80s now this is a really interesting choice and, and I'll, I'll leave it to you to explain you did you did tell me before we started but for those listening um who, who are who, who are a horror fan we're going to do 1985's Life Force as his fifth grade British horror film choice. Do you want to do you want to give the provenance that explains why you would? Well, I think the thing about Life Force that is interesting to me in this particular thing, I'm not going to claim it's the greatest horror film ever. It's there are lots of problems with it and um, and so forth, but it's fascinating in the ways in which it raises a series of things about precisely what we were talking about minutes ago: what is Britishness and what is not. Because I haven't checked, but I'm sure some people would dispute that it's a British horror film. It's probably made by an American studio. It's certainly made by an American director. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's Toe Hoogler who um, directed Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's a film he makes in uh, the mid-80s. But it's set in Britain, and it's not just set in Britain. Actually, the film is textured out of references to British cinema. It's a kind of giant homage to um to a whole series of british horror texts it's full of stuff um, relating to to hammer but actually almost insistently it goes back to um nigel neal and nigel neal's career so in a series of ways there are there are very strong kind of one might say borrowings um from um from the Quatermass films. Um, it's um, it's full of star performances by interesting characters, so, you know, character actors. So Frank Finley appears in it um, is um, as one character. And Frank Finley, um, for people who don't know who he is, is a great British actor that appeared in a whole series of thing, really interesting things. But he's in in horror terms, is probably best known for his association with the great British uh, BBC adaptation of Dracula, in which he played Van Helsing, and um, and that's a really interesting you know choice for them to make there. It's also it features a, a kind of uh, I think I think he's a secret agent rather than a policeman. He might be a policeman, he might be a secret agent, 
played by, um, I always get these wrong, not Colin, but Peter Firth. Peter who, yeah, yeah. yeah, and Peter Firth is, um, is, again, a really interesting actor there who, as we see, was re- he's the star of the film version of, um, of Equus, which is the Peter Schaefer play, which is a highly respectable play, very, very well regarded, um, big hit of the uh, late 70s, but you watch it again, it's a horror film. I mean, it, it, almost explicitly. In fact, it launches the career of a whole series of people who will end up in heavily associated with horror. So, actually, who's the star of it? it one of the stars of it who tours in America with it, it's um, Anthony Hopkins. On the basis of Anthony Hopkins' stardom in that, he's then put in an American film, which turns out to be Magic, which is basically a rip-off of Dead of Night. Um it's so there's a kind of series of weirdnesses about that. So what's interesting about um Life Force is what it demonstrates is whether it's American or British, it's certainly playing with Britishness and playing with a kind of style associated with Britishness. Um and I think that kind of sense of what is British and what is American because America is always making British you know, kind of heritage horror. Um, the, the America, Britain is often trying to kind of break into the American market. Um, one of the great things that's often pointed out is um, the 1930s Universal unit um, that made all those great Universal horror films, dominated by British actors and directors. James Whale, British, he's from the black country. Um, uh, Boris Karloff. British. Um, in fact, you know, kind of um, most of the key stars and um, of that of the of the Universal films are British in the thirties, and there's a kind of um, it's sometimes referred to as a kind of uh, that unit as a kind of uh, British cinema in exile. Um, so I, I think Life Force is interesting because of the ways in which it does bring together all those kind of that, that and question, you know, that line between Britishness and Americanness. And you see it again and again, um, you know, kind of John Carpenter is fascinated with Nigel Neal, gets him to write the third um, Halloween film, remakes the Children of the Damned. Um, you know, there's a whole series of ways in which, you know, you look at so many of those figures and they're remaking... They're remaking British stuff. No, it's it's really interesting that the. the uh, I mean, I, I feel like there should be a statue to Nigel Neal somewhere. Um, <laughs> the, more, be one. the more I do this podcast, the more you know, because it's it, it, if there's if there's one name that that I've learned to appreciate, or there's one sort of author of horror work in British horror. It's it's Nigel Neal. I think his 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 place is writ large in sort of either the. You know the conversations I've after when people tell me they've listened to a show or or, or within shows. It's uh, it's it's clearly someone that needs to be. I mean, I know I know he's been canonized in a head press book. Someone's written a book, written a, you know about him. But I feel like there's not there's not not that much mainstream love, and I feel like I feel like that's way overdue. But that's that's for another day, I suppose. Um, one thing I, I would say, looking back over your five choices, it's it was interesting. You know. Like I, like I said to you before we started, it's for me. It's always that I'm looking forward to the discovery, and now for you to keep coming back to the Schaefer plays, which I'm not that familiar with, but the idea that they were 
transported from their kind of play origins into what then looks to be a horror film is something I'm definitely going to be exploring after the fact. And um, and I just love this notion, even if it's just a construct of of sort of 1960-65 being this kind of open door for uh, for ambitious horror films, which, you know, in this day and age, people would struggle to even call them horror films. Um, well, and that's, but, I think that's something, I mean, that's something for me, I, you know, you, you always think, you, you know, you kind of know a lot, you know, you know enough, and then suddenly you're confronted with a sort of new narrative, and you're like, yeah, that makes sense. It doesn't sound incredulous by any stretch. Well, one of the things to bear in mind is, of course, actually, it's a... It's a really interesting conjunction of things that happens around 1955. So, 55, two years before Hammer get going, there is a huge box office hit in America of a, of a horror film, which is a phenomenal, and it's the phenomenal success of that that William Castle says is responsible for him going into horror big time. He reckoned if a Little movie like that could have such a big impact. He can ma- he can make a fortune off this. And the film is La Diabolique. It's a French art film. Um, it's um, it's Clouseau's um, La Diabolique, which is a, a French art house horror film, which is um, which comes out two. One, I can't remember. It's one or two months before Alfred Hitchcock presents starts airing. So you have this kind of conjunction in 1955 of the phenomenal success of Alfred Hitchcock Presents as a television series, which is due to Joan Harrison, not due to Alfred Hitchcock. And um, and this French art house hit, Le Diabolique, which, um, you know, cleans up at the box office, the art house box office in America. And, beca- and as many people have pointed out, it's, all those psycho movies of the 60s don't look like psycho. Everybody kind of says, oh, the psycho, post-psycho films. They're not psycho imitations. They're diabolique imitations. And Castle was explicit about that. But even Hammer's psycho films in the 1960s are diabolique copies, not copies of psycho. This is really interesting because this is, this is a crossover between what you're, what, what, where you're looking at horror films from the point of view of what you'll be talking about in Miskatonic and uh, Richard Hand, who was there last time, and yeah. he was talking about his his was from the point of view of the legacy of the Grand Guignol, and he used uh, Le Diabolique as one of the examples of where, you know, horror films began to show their 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 debt to the Grand Guignol in the way that they did the sort of horror. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Well, look, you're going to be speaking at the Miskunt Institute at the Horse Hospital on the Thursday, the seventh of March. I'll put details. In the show notes, um, is there any? Have you got any um, any any publications in the in the pipeline, or anything? Any new projects you want to you want to shine a light on before we close? Um, there, there, no, not really. There is one publication that, if people go online, it, there's an article which you can download for free called mm-hmm. Beyond Hammer, mm-hmm. which is about um, really the Brit, the horror film um, in the British and American market between 55 and 65 so they might that that's free to download so you can go and enjoy that if you want to but it's very long i shall put that in the show notes thank you very much for giving your time on the breakfast podcast absolute pleasure the breakfast podcast is provided absolutely free if you want to help me get the podcast out to more people please take a moment to leave a review on itunes or if you want to help me out directly there's a link in the show notes 
to my Patreon page. All contributions are welcome. And the music is by Chris Reed of thecomposers.tv. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.